Father, I just want to thank you for Monty. I want to thank you for his word. Please be with him, his spirit. But Father, uh, primarily, we just want your word to be heard, your truth to be known. Um, so please be with Monty as he prays over us, as he worships you, Father, but also as he preaches your word. So we thank you for, for Monty. Be with him now. Be with our church that we would accept your word lovingly. Um, and finally, just together as a group to worship you today. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Justin. I've never been so excited about announcements before. Um, good morning, Grace Hill. If you have a Bible or an app, you turn to First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4. That's where we'll be this morning. Um, but I'd... Uh, I was just really blessed by the the worship set. Um, you know, Melody contacted me and said, "So, what? What? What's the focus of your message?" And and I'll just pick out the songs. And I'm like sitting here, blown away. So, based on that, I'm going to continue the message. That's what you've been hearing. So, it's a it's a blessing to me. Um, And so we should start this morning by drawing our attention first to the last verse in our our passages this morning. We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. And I want to point out that verse 18, um, Paul, Silas, and Timothy are writing this letter, tell us, therefore, encourage one another with these words. And I heard a great story this morning from uh, Nick Lamont, and that yesterday um, Nick and, and Amanda Lamont were attending her grandfather's funeral, and uh, Nick knew the verses that I was going to be preaching on this morning, and he said, and the pastor used those verses. This is for encouragement. That's the point of the text this morning. Our text this morning tells of Jesus' second coming. His return is an encouragement to be urged toward one another as brothers and sisters, not only to the Thessalonian church, but to us as well. Uh, This text is pastoral. It's not academic. It's a pastoral, encouraging text. Do you remember what Alan and Evan have have walked us through so far about the the church in Thessalonica? Um, Do you remember that Paul was run out of Thessalonica after planting a church there, and then he went on to plant a church in Berea. And while he was in Berea, the Thessalonians, in Acts they're called the rabble, the rabble came to Berea and ran him out of Berea. So many of the Thessalonian Christians were undergoing persecution, and many of the Thessalonian uh, Christians were, were dying under that at the same time, yet the news that Timothy brought back to Paul was that they were thriving, and this letter was written as an encouragement to take heart. Therefore, the name of this series is Take Heart. So far in Thessalonians, the, uh, the word being used in our passage this morning for encourage has been used five times uh, before this passage that we're reading this morning, and it will be used two more times after this. In chapter 2, Verse 11 and 12, he reminds them how they were, how he was with them. He had encouraged them and comforted them to live worthy of God who calls them into his own kingdom and glory. 
And in chapter 3, verse 2, he reminds them that he sent Timothy to them to encourage and comfort them. And then in chapter 3, verse 7, he lets them know how they, Paul, Timothy, and Silas, while they were in distress and affliction, were comforted and encouraged by the news of the Thessalonians' faith. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul, Timothy, and Silas encouraged the Thessalonians how to walk to please God and do that more and more. And then last week we heard in chapter 4, verse 10, how they, they gave them encouragement um, to love one another more and more. So the Thessalonians are told because of the word of God, from God about Jesus' return to therefore encourage one another with these words. And so that's what we want to look at as we go in our verse-by-verse study. So uh, the Thessalonian church must have asked Paul about the return of Jesus and when that would be as well. They must have asked him of this. And, and they also had, some no, they had no hope about those who have died from persecution or anything else before Jesus' return. Uh, they seem to have no hope, and they're very anxious about the way things are going uh, and those who have died before Jesus' return. I wonder, do you, do you find yourself at times in a place of, of feeling like you have no hope? Do you know of, of others who find themselves in a place of having no hope because of, of things like this? Well, uh, let's read our passage now uh, this morning and see what hope the Lord has to offer to us today. Start in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, don't miss that, that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. In verse 13, it says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as those, as others do, who have no hope. Paul is wanting the Thessalonians to be encouraged rather than have no hope. He uses the word asleep here to give them hope so they know the certainty of being raised again from the dead. The word asleep here means just that, but it also is used figuratively for the dead. But in verse 16, the word dead is also used to refer to the same people who are asleep. Verse 16 says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ 
will rise first. So the word for dead in the Greek is a different word from the word asleep. Both words are used in our passage for the same ones who will rise first. The truth that they have died is not lost. However, there is another truth that Paul, Silas, and Timothy want them to understand, giving them hope. There is another truth here that says the dead in Christ will be awakened. They will rise first. Hope here is not like, I hope the commanders win the Super Bowl. That kind of hope is a wish-would-happen kind of hope or wish-would-take-place. However, there's no guarantee, so you might as well be saying, I hope the commanders win the Super Bowl, but don't bet on it. The return of Jesus is our true hope. This hope of which the New Testament speaks refers to those promises that God has made and whose fulfillment is absolutely certain. There's no doubt about it. This is a hope that will never disappoint or make us ashamed. This return of Jesus is referred to as the blessed hope, and and where we get that is in Titus 2, verse 13. It says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Is Thessalonians the only place that we where the dead in Christ are referred to as asleep? No. Do you remember in John eleven eleven when Jesus tells his disciples that our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm on my way to wake him up? And the, and the disciples say, well, he'll wake up, right? Why do we need to go there? And he, he says, I'm on my way to wake them up, and he does. In Matthew 27, 52, when Jesus is on the cross and he yields up his spirit, the curtain of the temple was torn in two and the ground shook. And it says, the tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And I want you to see in 1 Corinthians 15, 18 through 20, it says, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They've died. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we're of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This is our living hope. Knowing that Jesus being raised from the dead is the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. We all will have the same fruit of the new resurrected body no matter how long we've been asleep. Draw your attention to 1 Peter 1, uh, verses 3 through 5. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, for you, who, you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith 
for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter is encouraging us by reminding us that we were born again to a living hope that is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading to a certainty. And how are we told we can be certain? Peter tells us it is being kept in heaven for us. He also tells us that we are being guarded by God's power through this faith that a salvation will be revealed in the last time. Take heart. Be encouraged with these words. Going back to our passage, continuing with verse 14 in 1 Thessalonians 4. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him, Christ, those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with a voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Those who are alive at the coming of Jesus will witness a spectacle that will just be unbelievably glorious beyond what we can even imagine. To see Jesus descending from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, not just any trumpet, this is the trumpet of God, it says, that will be glorious. The word for cry of command here it is, is an, means, uh, or it also is shout in other translations. And the, and the word for it is keliuma, and it means an order, a command, a stimulating cry like a man would rouse or urge the horses of a chariot, or a signal given by to soldiers by a commander. You say, charge, let's go, move out. And do you remember Jesus standing before Lazarus' tomb? And he shouts, Lazarus, come out. Then you have the trumpet as well. There is no event that goes, this is not an event that will go unnoticed. And it amazes me that some of the commentators on this this verse call this the silent coming of Jesus. Are you kidding me? Then to have the dead in Christ rise to meet him in the air and any who are alive in Christ to follow and meet him in the air as well. Does that not sound glorious? It's something we all should find hope in, not only that, but just desire to see that. But we all won't meet him in the air to stay in the air. We will be with him to join him in his triumphal return to earth. He's returning to earth. We're going up to meet him. And we will come with him. And in verse 15, all of this is being declared by a word from the Lord. Verse 17 in our passage says, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. We're going to go up, 
will be with him, will return down. Therefore, verse 18, encourage one another with these words. I also this morning want to draw our attention to Ephesians. Ephesians is one of my favorite books. I preached on that earlier. But Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, and verse 13. 1 through 10 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you, in once, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air, of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, loved all of mankind, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I will get back to that in a little while. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. All of this is the good news of the gospel. That is how you know, and I know, that we're in Christ. If there's anyone here who does not know our Lord Jesus, but would like a relationship with Jesus, please come see me or any of us afterwards to talk about that, about this living hope that is secure. You have not been left to secure your own future because God in grace has secured an end to your story more glorious than you can grasp. If you remember that you have this wonderful future ahead of you, you won't live as if this moment is all you have. And you will be free of the anxiety of fearing that somehow this moment will pass you by. I love the qualifying words that Peter used to describe our inheritance as the children of God. Imperishable, undefiled and unfading, absolutely secure. Many of you may be wanting to get me to get to the, to the when part of the second coming. When, when will this be? Premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, what is it? Well, I'm certainly not the person to get into all of that with you. But I will peek into next week's text to answer that question for you the way Paul, Silas, and Timothy answered it. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 and 2 says, Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers and sisters, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. For God, verse 9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Here, Paul, Timothy, and Silas again urge us to encourage one another and build one another up instead of focusing on things that may discourage others and cloud the good news. Those who are in Christ should view their own forthcoming death as an appointment on Jesus' calendar, which he will faithfully keep. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 52 says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Some of you may be wondering, as the Thessalonians did, and anxious about loved ones who've passed away. You may be wondering if they were in Christ and therefore have the, this glorious event before them. There also may be some of you who are wondering and anxious, as the Thessalonians were, about loved ones who are still with us but not in Christ. You may be wondering, what about them? Especially if they won't listen and they reject the gospel. That there is salvation through the blood of Jesus that brings us into the kingdom of God. I believe and I have hope, but I'm not certain of my own father's situation, who is dead. I don't know if he's in Christ. Before my father died, I made a trip to see him specifically to share the gospel with him. Although he had been attending church all his life, and my grandmother was a very godly woman who raised him, although he was a faithful elder in the church, there was a sermon delivered, and I was an elder in that same church before Lori and I moved up here. There was a sermon delivered by his pastor at the time that said, all religions lead to the same God and same salvation. I had heard about this from friends who attended that church as well. And I asked my father, was this true? He confirmed that the pastor had said that from the pulpit. Well, having had been an elder in the same church, I told my dad, I said, I said, you have one of three choices, Dad. You, one, would go to the board of elders and ask for a recanting of this error or the resignation of the pastor. Or two, you would resign as an elder of that church and find another church to support and attend. Or three, do nothing because it just doesn't matter. He chose to do nothing. That's when I decided I needed to make a trip to make sure he heard the gospel. On that trip, I made sure we had one-on-one -on -one time and were able to sit and talk where I went through the truth that Jesus came to this earth to save sinners and gave his life as a gift 
so that we could rely upon his work to save us, not our own, not our own qualifications. We talked for a good while and going through several scriptures with him. And when I asked him if that was where he stood in his faith, his response was only, well, I might not say it as eloquently as you do, but I'm comfortable. That, what does that mean? It's all I had to go on. Or was it? I feel certain that I was sent by God. I feel certain I delivered the truth faithfully. I know that Jesus said he would be with us and as we went and through the end of the age. I know that Ephesians 2, 8, 9 that we read earlier says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Can I rely on God? Can you rely on God? Can I rely on the blood of Christ that draws us near and saves us as we read? Can you rely on that? Is there living hope still for me, for us? Or does it tarnish, get tarnished because I don't know the outcome for my father? As I said before, I believe and I hope, although I'm not certain. I do know my father has always been better off in God's hands than mine. I just needed to be obedient, and he does the miracle. He does the miracle of someone being born again. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe my father has already been in Christ, and I was just sent to strengthen my own faith. Are you and I confident that the Lord gave us assignments to teach these things to loved ones who are still with us? Are you and I confident that the Lord is with us in all the time that we spend with them? Do we want to know that it will all turn out with the same glorious ending that we read about in today's passage? Yes, very much so for all those questions. Is this passage from 1 Thessalonians an encouragement? It is an encouragement to me despite not knowing the result. How so? I'm reminded of the story of Gideon in the book of Judges, if you'll bear with me. To remind you what's going on in the story of Gideon, the Midianites would come down and oppress Israel because Israel was doing what was evil in the sight of of the Lord, and he allowed the Midians to do that, the Midianites. In Judges 6, 3 through 4, it says this, For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. That's a setup for where Gideon is right now. We find Gideon then in a hiding in a wine press threshing his wheat. If you don't know, threshing your wheat, you would... You would take the wheat and you would, you would pound on it or thrash it and, and that would separate the husks of, from the kernel. 
and that's called chaff. And then you would, you'd have to be in an open area where there's a breeze, and you would throw this all up in the air, and the breeze would carry the, the, the chaff away, and the kernels would fall, and then you have your, your, what you're looking for. And so he, we find him in a wine press where there is no breeze, and he's hiding because he wants to protect the wheat from being taken from him, and, and like anything else, and, and can you blame the guy? While he's in the wine press, an angel of the Lord, Judges 6, 12 through 14, an angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Mighty man of valor, hiding in a wine press. And Gideon said to him, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? Would you call Gideon a mighty man of valor hiding in a wine press? We might ask, as Gideon did in, in our situations, like I'm talking about with my dad, are you really with me? Have you forsaken me? What's going on, God? The story goes on in verse 15. And he, Gideon, said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you. And you shall strike the Midianites as one man. We all need to be reminded of how we were told from the very beginning of our faith. Jesus said, I will be with you always. And the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And we all need to be reminded, as Gideon was told, Go in this might of yours. Do not I send you? Jesus, does Jesus not send us in the might that we have, just like Gideon? And the might is those two things. Jesus is with us, and he's the one sending us. He's the one assigning us these things. Be encouraged. Know that, Christ, that in Christ is your hope. Your hope is not in the results of what you do or what you do not do. This is a living hope. You will meet the Lord in the air one way or another along with all the others and you will always be with him in glory. Go in this might of yours knowing that it is the resurrected, living Jesus who is with you and works all things for the good of those who love him. And he's the one sending us. Ephesians 2.10 that we read. And he's the one making the good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has this. Be faithful. Be obedient. Be encouraged. And go in this might of yours. Take heart. Will you all pray with me? Father in heaven, you are holy, and you're wholly different than we are as your creation. But you have made us in your image to be set apart for your purposes, for your blessings, and for your glory.
for those purposes, blessings, and glory, we pray that we will be bringing your kingdom here around us right now as it is in heaven. You have purposed us for that and have assigned each one of us a place where we live around others, families, and each person that crosses our path. We look forward with anticipation of the glorious return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We've, we've sent each of a, you have sent each of us to these assignments and have promised that you will be with us. Give us a reminder of your word daily. Forgive us our sins that tempt us away from what you have told us. Lead us away from the temptation and protect us from our own temptation to avoid these assignments. Protect us from the evil one's lies and schemes. It's for your kingdom and your glory that we pray these things. In the precious and all-powerful name of your son, Jesus. Amen.